Hi, this is Brent Skousen, the youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. What you're about to hear is a live recording of a university lecture by W. Cleon Skousen as he taught his Old Testament course. We really are fortunate to have these recordings, although at the time they weren't anticipated to be released publicly. As these lectures were recorded live, they are unscripted and unedited. You will feel as though you are actually there. If you are following the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we have tried to coordinate each lecture with this week's lesson, although there may be some overlap. For those interested in the text Brother Skousen and the students are using, it is published as The First 2,000 Years, written by W. Cleon Skousen, and is available at bookstores or online at skousen2000.com. Now sit back and join us in the classroom of W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy! Now, if I can have your attention rather closely, because you'll need to think very carefully with me now as we talk about one of the most profound doctrines of the gospel that comes up at this point because of what the Lord told Adam. You know, um, a number of years ago, more than I like to remember, when I went on my mission at 17, the church was sending missionaries to England from Quebec, Canada. And I went in October, just after the ice fields were forming, and, um, or the summer icebergs were coming down, one or the other, I don't know which. But we, I sailed on one of the loveliest uh, ships that was on the ocean at that time, subsequently torpedoed in World War II. It was called the Empress of Australia. And we sailed out across the North Atlantic, and we hadn't been out 12 hours when one of those terrible North Atlantic storms struck. And we were down in our, we were locked below deck. We actually were locked in for three days. That was so terrible. And the water and the, the storm was so terrific uh, that it took off a lot of the um, railings up on the other decks and the lifeboats. Some of them were knocked off. It was a terrible storm. And they had other ships try to get closer to us in case we really got in trouble. And at midnight on about the fourth day, so we, we had recovered from seasickness enough, and our stewards had cover, recovered from seasickness enough, so that any who wished could go on the top deck and go out and at least look around, just to be out in the fresh air. And as I went out on the top deck, I could see looming in the darkness, not far away, the icebergs. We were in an iceberg field exactly where the Titanic went down. And the water was washing the, the decks, a fairly big ship. Those huge uh, waves would come pounding down on that deck and wash them. I could see the wreckage down there and where we'd played uh, deck tennis and everything. All that was in a mess. And, and I was all alone. Nobody else came out with me at that particular time. And I was hanging onto the rail, looking out into that water. And I just realized how big that ocean was. Now little this ship was. Now, very little I was. And I got just a little bit of the feeling of Moses when the Lord showed him all his massive creations. And Moses said, I never realized before I'm virtually nothing. Just nothing. He'd been a prince of Egypt for 40 years, the heir and favorite shepherd and son-in-law, or, yes, yeah, son-in-law of Jethro, the high priest of the Midianites. And here at the age of 80, he saw this vision and he said, I never realized I was virtually nothing. Now our Heavenly Father has shared with us a lot of things about himself. 
And if you don't understand these basic things I'm now going to explain, it's impossible to understand the core of the gospel. And many fine Latter-day Saints never ask the questions, therefore they never hear the answers. But I was asking the questions at 17 because of some things my grandfather had told me who was stake president in Mexico. And so I took them to Brother Widso, who was our European mission president, and he was astonished, first of all, that I would ask these questions. But the fact that I did ask them encouraged him to share some things with me. And the next seven years were spent in research finding one of the lost doctrines of the church that hadn't been taught for about four generations. And it's magnificent. And all the references to everything I'm going to tell you today is in the appendix of your book. Brother Widso had me write it up for the improvement era. He said, we've got to get this thought back in the mainstream of the church. And then he wasn't able to print it in the era because there were five general authorities that were reviewing articles at that time. Three were thrilled that we were going to have the article. The other two didn't have any idea what we were talking about. And the rule had been laid down, it had to be unanimous before it could go into the era. So Brother Whitso sent it back and he said, you've accurately stated it. Now you put it in a book that you publish, the next book you publish. I'd actually only published one before. So, so the next book you publish, put it in, in it somewhere so we can get this back at the fingertips of the saints. So he started putting it in his evidences and reconciliations very gingerly because it, it was pretty big for some minds which for three generations had never contemplated this. But this is the thrilling, the most thrilling single doctrine of the whole church. And when you understand it, you will be thrilled. If it's incomprehensible, don't let it worry, worry you. You'll pick it up later. So for those of you who would be interested in it, let me share, you, share with you these thoughts. Our Heavenly Father has indicated that the family of the gods have cleansed and cultivated and conquered a certain territory in infinity. This is space. It's the area of organized kingdoms, different from infinity of unorganized kingdoms where outer darkness and chaos still exists. Space is the part of infinity where the family of the gods have brought everything under their control. Now the way that they do this is exciting because out here in outer darkness, the 93rd section of the Doctrine and Covenants says there are two eternal things. There is element, which is eternal, and there is intelligence, which is eternal. They are the building blocks of the universe. Everything you see is the product of eternal element combined with eternal intelligence and organized in all of these marvelous patterns that God has set up. Brigham Young says that matter is capacitated to receive intelligence. And when God says, let there be light, that is saying, let intelligence take over. And from then on, God is able to command the elements, and it says that gods would watch until they were obeyed. And they divided them, brought them together, brought up land out of the midst of it, commanded this and commanded that, the scriptures say, and then the gods watched until they were obeyed. And so if you get enough of these bits of matter capacitated to receive intelligence and organize them together, 
so that each receives the law as the Doctrine and Covenant says. The reason they obey that law and what we call chemistry and physics is because they are obeying a pattern that has been given to them. Some people have thought that God just discovered the laws of nature and then used them. It's just the opposite. God created a pattern of relationships for these intelligences and that's what we call the laws of nature. And that's why it's nothing for God to be able to say or have his priesthood say to the intelligences in water, which are trillions and billions of them you see in a quantity of water. Will you reorganize please? Wine. High quality wine please. And they did. No miracle. Mountain. Be ye removed into the sea. The Book of Mormon testifies of an occasion when it actually happened. And Jesus said, you have the proper amount of faith and authority. You can move a mountain into the sea. On order, on command. Hand. Leprosy. Leprosy. Moses brought it out dripping. Now, back as you were. Everything in its proper order. Pink flesh. This is the power of God. In the 29th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, and all of these references are in your appendix, 36th verse, the Lord says, You want to know what gives me my power? My honor that I gradually built up. That's what gave me my power. They honor me. And I can no more, this is the 42nd chapter of Alma, if I am unjust, if I am dishonest, if I am arbitrary, I would cease to be God. But Father, you are Elohim. You are the chief of the gods. True. And it took the eternities for me to get here as my fathers before me. And as it will take you eternities to rise where I now am. But I only remain here so long as those intelligences can trust me and know that I will not betray them. I will be absolutely just and immaculate in administering the laws of the universe. I am a just God. And I do not change one iota yesterday, today, or tomorrow. And they've learned to trust me. They therefore obey me. And nothing that I do, the 93rd section says, is by compulsion. You see those vast stars with the millions upon millions of planets that whirl about them in the process or already being people? Do you see those out there? All the materials that comprise them made up of intelligences and element are doing it because they want to do it. I gave them the pattern, but they voluntarily obey. That's why it takes me a little longer to do these things because it's all voluntary. But there's no compulsion out there. It's all by voluntary obedience. Now, once you know the source of God's power, you will realize where the family of the gods become trapped. 
at that point where they want us to come down and get a temporal body, learn the difference between good and evil, and then return to the presence of God if we can just somehow qualify. And not many make it. But the family of the gods in this tremendous, um, what shall we say, threshing process of finding those who are capable of Godhead and then letting the others be happy in their lower existences because everybody is happy. 88 section. If you're a terrestrial spirit, you'll think the celestial kingdom is just too many meetings. Uh, yeah, it's, it's just too sticky, that's all. I just don't want it that tight. I know they're able to have families and so forth, but for me, I like it a little looser, you know. <laughs> and then there are those that wouldn't even want that much, and they go to the telestial, and it's really loose down there. There are as many different degrees of glory in the telestial as there are stars in the heavens. Isn't that interesting? Different degrees of glory in the telestial. The 88 section says everybody will be happy where they ultimately go. I wouldn't think of going any higher. Too strict, too painful. But everybody in this room is headed for the highest degree of the celestial kingdom. It's the only gospel we preach. And if one doesn't accept that, they'll get whatever else is below that they will accept, that they, they, they're willing to do. But anyway, there's a pattern in which the Father had to get us down here and get temporal matter bodies which just aren't available on that wonderful spirit plane of element. See, there are two kinds of element. There's this that is pure and refined, and then there's this kind of element that's gross, that belongs to this lower level, which also has to have intelligence put into it, so it can be ordered and obeyed and so forth. And in the resurrection, the two are combined. And this is elevated up here. In fact, they use this. They elevate this first, and then that's as it used as a catalyst to attract this to it. 88, uh, section 88, I think, 20. Verse. In any event, uh, the science of the gods is gradually coming open to our minds as we're scrutinizing it. All right, now the task was to get you down here, get that body, and then make it possible for you get to get back to the Father. And it's impossible for the Father to do it. Absolutely impossible. Because you can't come down here and get a body and learn the difference between good and evil with a free agency environment and not fall on your face and scab your nose over and over again. Everybody does. We have to learn how to be honest under pressure. We have to learn how to get up and go to priesthood or relief society when we were up half the night from the ball game or something. We have to force this body to, to say, I, I will fast, I will fast. And in the process of learning these, this obedience, we all fall short, very far short of perfection. Now the Father's task is to develop some kind of program that would get us back. And the program that they've developed, the only one that ever worked, is almost too big to be comprehensible. That's why so few people even try to struggle to understand it. But when you get these principles in mind, it's not difficult to understand at all. What keeps you from going back to the presence of God? The law. What kind of law? The eternal law of justice. 
Every intelligence is out there saying, Now, Father, they sinned. No, no. They don't go back. And the Father has to say, You are right. And I will not bring them back. I will not bring them back. I must be the immaculate arbiter of heaven. I will administer the law immaculately. And I could not remain God and bring them back because I would be bringing sinners back into my presence contrary to the law. All those intelligences out there that honor the Father must be satisfied. So the family of the gods, the superior intelligences, found that all those little intelligences are susceptible to something beautiful called compassion. It's inherent in them. They're intelligent beings, some of them very primitive, but they have a capacity for compassion. So the family of the gods decided they would take one of their top people that all of these intelligences respected and put him through an experience that would just shake the very eternities because of his enduring and suffering and make it so terrible and build up so much compassion and sympathy that he would be able to come back to them and say, these are they for whom I labored. And they showed weakness and sin. Not for their sakes do I ask this, but for the sake of my suffering and all I've endured for them, could they come back? And the family of the gods found that it works and they will allow them to come back if they have done what they could do, which is called repentance, and entered into the ordinances and covenant to do their best. Then the intelligences will tolerate our returning. Otherwise, each person must pay the uttermost farthing and go to a lower kingdom, a lower level. That is the atonement of Jesus Christ. That's the reason for the thorns, the flagellation, the bleeding from every pore. And Jesus knew somewhat about his mission, somewhat about his mission. But I want to tell you when he faced it, in the final moment, he'd been instructed by angels what to do. Let me just give to you here briefly this opening of this material in your appendix. It was just 12 hours before the occasion of his crucifixion that Jesus of Nazareth retired to the seclusion of his favorite place of prayerful meditation on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. The scripture says he walked a little way from his disciples and suddenly threw himself prone upon the ground. It was nighttime and quiet. From the arboreal labyrinth of Gethsemane, his apostles heard the heart-stirring pleas of the very Son of God as he trembled in mortal anguish before the brink of destiny for which he was ordained and for which he was born. Oh, my Father, he said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And in another scripture it says, Father, all things are possible unto thee. You are all powerful. You can do this somehow without having me go through this. Take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thou what thou wilt. 
How did Elohim respond to this plea? We now know this was a bitter hour not only for Jesus but also for his father. Probably the desperate grief of Abraham when he raised the sacrificial knife to slay his beloved son Isaac could only compare in a finite degree with the incomprehensible grief which the, he the eternal father must have felt on this dark night as he beheld his own beloved son face the ordeal of torture and death, an ordeal which could have been prevented, but only at the risk of wiping out the whole plan of salvation for this particular branch of our father's family. Down through the corridors of 1900 years, there comes the echo of those pleading words, O oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And an angel was sent to minister to him to tell him he didn't have to do it. But if he didn't, not only this family would be lost, but the families on every other planet that came under Christ's jurisdiction, of which there apparently are many. He was born and raised, crucified and resurrected on this planet. But his atonement applies to all the branches of this particular family which are out on other, certain other planets about which the Father has not disclosed any details. And finally, after the third time, and when Jesus realized what a terrible thing was now in front of him as a, a, a living, throbbing, existing being, the vessels of his body couldn't even contain his blood. And through the sweat glands, the blood exuded in great drops there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And when that was finally over, he said, Father, thy will be done. And he rose resolutely and went back to the disciples, all of whom were asleep now and missed the last part of it. We, we think only John was awake and saw what has, little has been recorded. And he said, Now, arise, arise. Let us prepare. He who would betray the Son of God is coming. Just a few hours and it was all over. Now, as a result of that suffering, it says in the Doctrine and Covenants, he is able to go back to the Father. And he is able to say to the Father, not for their sake, Father, but for the sake of my suffering, let them come up. And the Father is able to say, because of the love and compassion that all of them feel for what you did, they have agreed to let me, let you bring them back. And therefore, if you want to know the real meaning of Easter and all that terrible cruelty, all that horrendous experience of Jesus the Christ, that's the reason. And when you understand this doctrine, Jesus becomes your personal Savior. And you'll never love the Father quite as much as, you, as when you realize what he did that dark night when he watched this beautiful spirit look up to him and say, Father, Take this from me.
and he had to urge him to go forward and do it. And he did it. So I close this segment by saying, 18 hours later, bleeding and naked on a Roman cross, Jesus of Nazareth suffered the torturous role of passing beneath all things. Not far away was his grief-stricken mother, and near her stood John, the beloved disciple. But on the cross, Jesus had to endure the terrible anguish of that moment alone. To consummate the work completely, the Father even withdrew his light, which is shed forth upon all men, and in doing so caused the Savior to cry out, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabakathini, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And immediately afterwards he said, It is finished. And then, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. At that moment, Jesus became the Christ. <clears throat> now that's why we're here that's why you were baptized that's why you made your covenants to qualify for this and when you bear your testimony to the truthfulness of this that's what you're talking about most of the saints lost it. Very few know this doctrine. It's almost one of the lost doctrines of the church. But you have to understand the intelligence in matter and the source of God's power to know why there had to be an atonement. We were cut off by the law. We were brought back on the principle of love and compassion. Completely different basis. And I sometimes hear people say, well, for each of our sins, Jesus paid the price. So that balanced it out. Not at all. Had nothing to do with balancing at all. It was just simply a question of suffering so terribly that all those intelligences would say, Jehovah, take them. If you need them to be happy, take them it works and Lucifer said this is ridiculous if you just compel them not to offend so that they could come back into your presence no intelligent could object if they were forced to live according to the high law give me a chance to save mankind and I'll not lose one and the father said everything out there obeys voluntarily if we introduced compulsion at this stage it would introduce into this great vast order of eternity the seeds of revolution no my son it won't work 
And in his rage, Lucifer raised up and seduced one-third of our brothers and sisters to follow him, to set up a new universe based on force. But congratulations, you were on the right side. You beat him. And we got down here. And we're on the way now. And you're very important people. And I just want to bear my testimony to you. These things are true. These things are true. And I say it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.